It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosamant and in this final of our special episodes for the Sydney Writers' Festival, we're in conversation with Rob Schmitz. Rob Schmitz is the Shanghai correspondent for US National Public Radio and the author of a book called Street of Eternal Happiness, Big City Dreams Along the Shanghai Road. I sat down with Rob at the Writers' Festival to talk about covering China, China-US relations and how global economic issues are often best explained through the stories of real people. I started by asking Rob what inspired him to write the book. So this book uh, came from a radio series that I did in 2012. And uh, the idea that I had at the time was that I was the only correspondent for a program called Marketplace uh, in the United States. And my job was to cover China's economy, which is kind of a big thing for one person to do, uh, an economy of 1.3 or 4 billion people. And I, I was sort of overwhelmed by uh, a lot of the stories that I was was working on. You know, numbers come out every week. Uh, I was traveling a lot. Um, and I sort of felt like I was missing the bigger picture of what was actually happening in China. And I, I realized that um, because radio is such an intimate medium and because China was changing so quickly, I felt like the best way to gauge how this change was impacting people was to actually speak to the people themselves um, and to focus on the individuals whose lives are being upended by a lot of this change. And so I had this idea that I would start with my neighbors. Um, I live on a street called Changlalu, which means Long Happiness Road, um, and I, I uh, translated it to Street of Eternal Happiness for the series. And I walked out my uh, apartment building and started talking to my neighbors. And for every month for the next year, I did one story about one single person living or working along the street that I lived on in Shanghai to talk about the broader changes that were happening and what this was doing to the individuals of China, what their dreams were, what their struggles were, and how they operated in this 21st century modern China. You write in the book that it is difficult to know what's actually going on in the economy, and you even quoted, uh, I think it was a 2007 quote from future Premier Li Keqiang, saying that China's GDP figures are largely man-made. How do you do traditional economic reporting in a country where the Premier, or who is going to be the Premier, is actually admitting that a lot of this stuff is entirely made up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. And I think that, you know, when you have the, the Premier of, of, of China saying that, you know, all these numbers are sort of, you know, we're kind of winging it here, that's not exactly encouraging for journalists who want to figure out what's actually happening in the broader economy of China. Um, but at the same time... I don't think it's that difficult, and, and I think that reporters, good reporters, uh, do their best to leave their posts. Most reporters reside in Beijing or Shanghai. These cities, you know, Beijing obviously is the capital of China, Shanghai is the wealthiest city and, and a big home of commerce in China, but these cities really don't represent what's actually happening in China. Um, these are cities that uh, the Chinese use to kind of look outward uh, towards the rest of the world. There's a lot of foreign trade happening, and so it's important for that. But if you want to know what's going on inside of China, um, I think it's best to uh, either stick with the people, which is what I did for this series, 
or to leave these cities and go out into the countryside and to these smaller cities, which are one or two million people, which are, are not small in Western terms, but very small in Chinese terms, and um, visit the factories, visit farms, uh, visit residential neighborhoods, and talk to people about what their bottom line is. How are you, what are you making? How much money are you making? And these are actually really interesting questions in China because, number one, as a foreign journalist, uh, asking someone how much they make is a very comfortable question for most Chinese. And usually they're, an they're asking me that question before I can ask them that question. And so um, it's actually a comfortable question for them, especially from a foreign journalist who they perceive as someone who's going to try and rock the boat or get to talk about political issues that they really don't want to talk about or don't feel comfortable talking about. So when I start with questions about, you know, how much do you make? How much did you make 10 years ago? Um, what's going on at work right now? That's something that people are comfortable with. And I think you can get to those really essential questions about the overall economy as well as politics and other sensitive issues through questions like that, through questions about uh, you know, monetary issues and their financial status right now. Two of your recent reports for NPR were on EB-5 visas, which is a special kind of visa, basically a fast track to permanent residency for anyone who will invest half a million dollars in a US-based development project. Another of your recent stories was about how the United Airline fiasco was really going to impact the company's bottom line because this story was seen in a very negative light by Chinese people is reporting on the Chinese economy increasingly becoming, reporting on the way that it is, in fact, intertwined and impacts on the U.S. economy? Well, for us, for, for sure, I mean, as a correspondent for National Public Radio, the point at which the economies of the U.S. and China connect is incredibly important for our listeners. You know, our listeners are Americans. They want to know about all of this. Um, when something happens at home, especially now with President Trump, and, you know, we have a, a very volatile president who is very unpredictable. Uh, and a lot of his tweets and a lot of his statements, I think, uh, can be misread, you know, easily by not only Americans, but also by the Chinese. And so that has become a big part of what I cover uh, for, for better or worse. And I think in some ways, uh, some of these issues, uh, especially when you look at Trump, um, we have to ask ourselves as journalists, is this worth covering? Is this relevant? Because I think it does threaten to take over uh, or take space away from stories that I think are more important um, that we should be covering from inside of China um, so that our listeners can understand what's actually happening there. Now, the, the two stories you mentioned, the EB-5 story and, and the United story, the United story Actually, the man involved was not Chinese. He was Vietnamese. It started out, um, a lot of people thought he was Chinese. And the Chinese suddenly, um, you saw a lot of people get angry about it because, you know, they're very sensitive about how the Chinese are being treated abroad. And so there was a, a very large response before it was revealed that he was actually Vietnamese American. But that's an important story, I think, in the sense that, that uh, it, was, it, was, it was fascinating, actually. The fact that he was Vietnamese American actually made it more fascinating because... You know, they saw an Asian face, just as you know anyone in the U.S. did, and even people in the U.S. just you know automatically assumed he was Chinese, not really understanding anything about it. Chinese as well. There was immediate stereotyping on both sides, which I thought was fascinating, and that showed how similar I think our populations are, the U.S. and, and China, because you know the Chinese and the Americans. I've always said this: 
are some of the, as far as when I look at the people, are probably closest in personality than I can imagine any other country. And a lot of people think that's crazy, but I think it's true because we both come from very large countries with big economies, both from countries where people are very patriotic and very self-confident about their, their countries, and both from countries where uh, when an injustice happens, um, there's a, an immediate outcry. You know, a lot of people don't realize that in China, but, but the Chinese, if you know any Chinese, they, they, you know, just like Americans, they get very angry when something isn't fair, especially like in a class issue or a, race, a racial issue. And so I think that, that it, in many ways, it, it exposed a lot of the similarities between the two countries. Now, the EB-5 issue was really interesting because I think in America, there is a, uh, a belief that the people that are uh, coming over from China and paying $500,000 or more for a visa are these filthy rich Chinese that drive around Ferraris and, you know, nouveau riche. And when I reported this story, I found out that, you know, that's actually not true. A lot of these folks, this is a lot of money for them. And they're doing it at great sacrifice so that their children can be educated in a system outside of, of China because they're so worried about China's education system that they are willing to pay that much money and for many of these people, you know, they're, yes, they make a lot of money, but they, I, I would say that they make, uh, you know, the equivalent of an upper middle class salary in Australia or, or, or the U.S. And they're spending a lot. And it's, it's a big investment for them. But they're doing it for their children. And I think when you look at China and how things work in China, sacrificing for your children is probably the most important thing that anyone can really do. To contrast Barack Obama and Donald Trump, one of the key features of Obama's foreign policy was the so-called pivot to Asia and the idea of strengthening a relationship with China. And in Trump, you have this, as you said, volatile man who used fear of China to rally support all throughout his campaign. But then the next moment, he's bonding with Xi Jinping over steak and chocolate cake at Mar-a-Lago. What do you think the next four years of China-US relations looks like? Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a huge question that I do not know the answer to. And even talking about this is, is sort of venturing into dangerous territory. I mean, we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow uh, with with uh, what's happening right now in the U.S. And, and, and our president and the investigations that are occurring inside of the administration with the FBI and, and everything else. So I think it, it's tough to predict what's going to happen. I do think that China, through all of this, has acted very diplomatically and very patiently, trying to figure out what they can possibly get from this whole situation. And I think Xi Jinping's visit to Florida, uh, the summit with President Trump, uh, was very important for China. And I think that they there seemed to, after that summit, there seemed to emerge this new relationship with China. Suddenly they were close. I mean, people called it a bromance. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I would say that the two seemed to get along, which uh, I think a lot of people were not predicting. And I think that um, that's encouraging. That's encouraging for Sino-U.S. relations, I think. But I also think that you never know when things will change with, with this president. And so, you know, just this week we saw the U.S., um, uh, sail a warship within 12 nautical miles of uh, artificial islands that China created in the South China Sea. That riled China up quite a bit, and China's response was a strong one. So I don't know if suddenly everything is hunky-dory between the two countries, 
But I do think that um, there seems to be at least a path of dialogue between the two presidents. And I think that that's a good thing. I think when Obama was president, there was a lot of distance between Xi Jinping and President Obama. Even though there was this so-called pivot to Asia, I'm not sure many foreign policy experts, especially on the China side, would say that they actually anything actually was happening. Uh, because Obama was concentrating his, a lot of his energy on domestic issues within the United States, as well as the Middle East. China was largely left by the wayside. I think that that hurt uh, our relations with, with China quite a bit uh, long term. Uh, I think it's good that Trump has engaged Xi Jinping uh, so quickly into his presidency. And I'm glad that the Chinese seem like they're interested as well, because this relationship is incredibly important. Two largest economies in the world. And I think you could also argue that these two economies are so intermingled that they're almost one economy. So what happens in one economy will have ripples in the other, so much so that uh, we sort of depend on each other. There is a bit of a codependency. And I think that when uh, you know, leaders are meeting, they're, they know this and they're keeping this in mind. It seems like everyone is looking towards the U.S. and perhaps the domestic news situation is very uh, inward-looking. How do you attract and engage the U.S. audience to care about what's actually happening in China? Oh, that's, that's actually not that difficult, because I think that the listeners to National Public Radio are, are not inward-looking. They are looking outward very much so. Um, we have some of the, the best-educated um, news consumers around, and our numbers are going up. Uh, uh, largely because of who is president right now. Um, when you look around the media landscape in the United States right now, subscriptions are up. New York Times subscriptions are up. Washington Post, NPR. I think that people are becoming more engaged because uh, they want to know what's happening with the presidency, but they also are looking outward, and they want to know what's going on in the rest of the world and what the rest of the world is is saying about this. Um, so I think... I think um, as long as I'm doing stories that are about real people and that are, uh, you know, something that is universally seen as a good story or an interesting story uh, about real people on the other side of the planet, I think people connect with that. And uh, I've I've not seen a shortage of demand for stories from China at all. And, and in many ways, I think some of the stories that I've done this year. Have, uh, have become pretty popular among a lot of people. So I think, I think that demand is still there despite what's going on in Washington, and I think that that's a good sign. One of the real people in your book is a man in his mid-30s called Chen Kai. You call him CK in the book, and he is an expert accordion maker and trader and also a restaurateur. But he, I think he's a really interesting character. He seems to struggle with what he wants to make of his life. And you observe that the older generations of Chinese, generations like CK's parents, have had a completely different experience to that of their children and that the older generations relied much more on their family and on the state to guide them through life, something that younger generations don't have anymore uh, they don't have the state interfering directly in their choice of work as older generations did and their families have had such a different experience that it's hard for them to actually guide them through their life today. I think that's a really interesting observation, the lack of a shared experience between generations. But I just wonder, is there anything at all liberating in that for young Chinese? 
Yeah, I think there's something very liberating about that. And I think that CK's story is a story of liberation in many ways. Um, just like every character in this book, there's five characters in my book, and each of them has something in common. They are all being uh, sort of controlled by something outside of them, whether it's their parents or whether it's the state or something else, or expectations from family. And that sort of that source of control may, may vary, but they all are looking to liberate themselves in, in one way or another. I think that that is the hallmark of 21st century China, is people trying to uh, rest away from, rest themselves away from that control, whether it comes from the family or whether it comes from the state. Um, CK's story is, is one of liberation in the sense that he uh, has a very controlling father who was also controlled by the state, right? So there's this kind of history of control. And um, what he's trying to do is to make enough money so that he can be financially independent because he realizes that a lot of this control has to do with, with money. So he, he does exactly that. Uh, he ends up in Shanghai, and he, he's making, uh, by the time I'm talking to him, he's making more money than an average American makes. And that's a lot of money at that time in, in, in Shanghai. He starts his own sandwich shop, which is a kind of ill-conceived business that doesn't do very well at all. But, but he, he doesn't want to make money from it. He actually wants people like him, artists, musicians, free thinkers, to, to come and have a space where they can... Uh, sip coffee, eat a sandwich, and, and share their ideas. Uh, it's a bit pie in the sky, but it, it, it does work to a certain extent. But during this time, he's trying to liberate himself further from uh, a lot of the problems that he has personally, and so he starts to dip into religion. And so his story in the book is one of someone who is constantly looking for liberation, whether it's from control uh, from a very overbearing father or liberation through uh, spirituality. And he, in, in the end, he finds uh, a Buddhist master who teaches him uh, a lot about uh, spiritual liberation. But again, like a lot of the religious elements to my book, and there are a few characters who, who get very involved in religion, the religion has a scam element to it because right now religion is very new in China and a lot of people are unsophisticated about it. And so there's a lot of people out there uh, that are uh, using religion to cheat people, uh, to trick people. Uh, and in the case of his master, his Buddhist master, it's a man who is uh, purporting to be able to heal people uh, with uh, his religion, uh, which I found fascinating. But CK, who is not someone who's looking for any physical healing, uh, gets something very valuable out of this. And uh, so th it's not, it's not com he's not being scammed, but he's smart enough to be able to get what he needs out of the current scenario. And I think that that in many ways is a great metaphor for China today, that despite whether it's a, a, a kind of, a, kind of a, a corrupt Buddhist master or whether it's a corrupt state, people in China can see a lot of them, you know, as long as you kind of have your wits about you, you can figure out a way uh, to get around all of that and, and find liberation or find money or find whatever you're looking for as long as you sort of navigate this pretty complicated system. Chinese millennials outnumber the U.S. population. And these millennials have grown up with a pretty limited knowledge and understanding of 
events in Chinese history like the Hundred Flowers campaign, like the Cultural Revolution and the student protests that ended with the crackdown in Tiananmen in 89. This generation is also, however, the most connected of any Chinese generation. They're all digital natives and they're definitely a lot more cosmopolitan than than their parents and their parents' parents. They have a much greater sense of the outside world. And I just wonder, as this generation becomes China's leaders, does, does China become more progressive? Or because of that limited knowledge of things that have happened in the past, does it move backwards? That's a difficult question to answer. It's hard to know, you know, whether or not the younger generation is just simply young and will change once they get older, like many of us do. Uh, and you know, the ones who end up in power uh, are already changing, perhaps. Or whether they're actually a new generation that thinks differently than the older generation. I've thought about this question quite a bit. And I sort of come down on the, the latter explanation. I do think they're, they're different. And the reason I think that is that when you look at the generation that Xi Jinping, the current leader of China, is from. He's from a generation that grew up with all of the campaigns of Mao. They were a generation that had to survive. Many of them died. Uh, you know, 36 million people starved to death in the late 50s, early 60s from the Great Famine that was started by a Mao campaign called the Great Leap Forward. Uh, later on in the Cultural Revolution, tens of millions more people died from being purged or being sent to camps or being or thinking incorrectly. And many people would um, you know, turn in their parents, they would turn in their teachers, they would turn in their neighbors. And so this generation comes from this, I, I think, they're, they're motivated by fear. They've been surrounded by fear their whole lives, and they've had to survive. And so they have a survivalist mentality. Xi Jinping definitely has a survivalist mentality when you look at how he thinks about the rest of the world and how he sees the world. This new generation is not motivated by fear. They grew up with growth, economic growth economic growth that no other country has ever seen in the history of this planet. 30 years of unprecedented change and unprecedented economic growth, and that's all they know. Um, So they've in many ways been born in the middle of a renaissance in China. And instead of being motivated by fear, um, they're motivated by their own curiosity. And so many of them who have the means are able to leave China now and see the rest of the world. They're learning quite a bit. You mentioned not being educated or, or you know, having big gaps in their education about history. Well, when they go abroad, they learn about that history. And they have their own ideas about that. And it might not go along you know, with a lot of Western ideas about, for example, Tiananmen Square and things like that. They're able to put it, I think, in somewhat of a better context than Westerners can because that was a big cataclysmic thing that happened. And then after that, you didn't hear from China for a while. But they were in China during that time. So they can see it, in the, I think, in a more appropriate context. So I do think that when this generation uh, is in power in about 20 to 30 years, we are going to see some very interesting changes in China uh, because we will see leaders who can speak more than one language, possibly two or three. Um, They're going to be engaging other countries in a different way. Um, They're not going to see the world as something to fear. They're going to see the world as something to engage. And I think that that's really important to understand. So I think, I personally think, and I could be completely wrong because my predictions sometimes are way off. With, with China, you have to be really careful about these sorts of things. But I do have a lot of hope 
for that generation. Um, I've gotten to know a lot of people in that generation, and I find them fascinating. They're well-read. And it's interesting, you know, when I go to book events in China, uh, when I'm talking about my book, and the Chinese have read the book, the people that show up are not uh, older people. They're all young. They're all under the age of 35. You know, here in Australia or in the United States or in the EU, when I've done book events, most of the people are over the age of 50. So it's interesting to see that in China, these are folks who want to learn. You know, these are young people who are hungry for knowledge. And uh, I wonder how important the young people of Australia and America will be in, in the 21st century when you see how engaged these young Chinese are and how much they want to learn. So I would say I have, I have much higher hopes for them than I do for the young people of my own country. I was fascinated in the book by the story of a woman called Shi Guojin, and she is a petitioner. So she is someone who travels to Beijing regularly to try and seek justice for what has happened to her, and that is that her husband has been killed by construction workers trying to seize their property. You said that that these petitioners are often seen as desperate, penniless, uneducated, and often out of touch with reality. They're fighting against an unjust system, and that's almost never going to achieve good results. You observed that the people that you saw succeed were people who, and, and I'm quoting you here, people who swam carefully at an angle that followed the current, but that took them to the edge of it, carving their own way while ceding control to its raw power. I think it's a beautiful description. I think it really captures a sort of a pragmatism that makes a lot of sense in China. But I just wonder if it's a little bit depressing to think that there really is no point in standing up to systematic injustice. What I was saying was that I think that people can uh, change this system, but I believe that it is not a change that happens in these cataclysmic events where people stand up and protest and everything's very romantic and there's a revolution. I don't see that happening in China. What I see when people are changing, the change in China is incremental. When I talk about people who are sort of swimming their own path, like, you know, with the current, but at the same time with their own individual path, that's how you change China. You know, you, you have to swim a little with the current. You cannot just swim against it completely. If you try to swim against the current, you're going to drown. And that happens to every single Chinese person I know who will just fight the system and look at it in a black and white manner. The ones who succeed are the ones that understand the power of the system because it is quite powerful, but can see ways to change it incrementally. And I think that that is... That's what I meant through that, but it's also, I think, the reality in China that that I think that the, the people that are the the uh, forebears of change in China are folks that are going to be able to change the system while understanding its power and knowing how to do it is basically doing it very slowly and very incrementally. China is a country that has thousands of years of history. It is not used to changing very quickly. It is not used to the last 30 years that it has just had. And I think that it is more used to very, very slow change. And it's more comfortable with that. The system sort of is more comfortable with that. And I think that, that, that in many ways, when you grow up in that system, you understand that reality. And so a lot of the young people that I know that I think are actually doing something to change it, even on a local level, are doing so while sort of keeping an eye on, on, on the powers that be because you have to be careful. It is a police state. 
it is an authoritarian system. And uh, that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. Rob Schmitz, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Fourth Estate, and we hope you enjoyed these four special conversations with Sydney Writers Festival guests. If you haven't caught them all, don't worry, they are all still available in your podcast player. We spoke to Sebastian Malaby about how economic journalists should explain complex issues and why we really need to move on from avocado toast. Desi Anwar about reporting between languages and cultures in Indonesia. And Mikhail Zigar about Putin, Russian politics and House of Cards. We'll be back to our regular programming next week. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast and if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Stay in touch on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm Olivia Rosenman. Catch you next time.